The Start On Demand. On demand. A Ukrainian church in Winnipeg is the site of a despicable act of vandalism as some thug or thugs decapitated the statue of St. Volodymyr. We'll give you the details on that and speak to the church's Monsignor. The Arlington Bridge, it's gotta go sooner or later, likely sooner. The latest recommendation is coming up with a solution needs to be priority one for the city of Winnipeg. Manitoba's first ever eSports Expo is happening this weekend in Winnipeg. What's your favorite video game? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, May 23rd podcast for The Start. How are you feeling today, Greg? Did you and Scott Moreland go out for a rip yesterday? Or no what? ripping. What does one do on their 50th birthday? Oh, well, uh, if you're <laughs> me, you uh, go out for lunch, uh, go to Blue Bomber training camp, hang around a little bit. Nice. And then uh, go to Jonesy's in Birds Hill for dinner. Jonesy's. In, in bed by nine o'clock. That's not bad. Not bad. That's a, that's a nice little Wednesday. Oh, and I read the first uh, 20 pages or, or so of Howard Stern's new book. Which uh, the boys got from for me for the, my birthday. Mm. So very nice, very, very enjoyable. Nice Thank you for asking. How are you feeling? More importantly, you're you're frozen pee less <laughs> this morning. I figured you'd Wait, have. Wait, let's just define Mc... what. Well, he doesn't have frozen pee. <laughs> just want to be clear. P-E-A, frozen pee. Yes, you have to be explicit. P E A. I don't. I do not have a bag of frozen peas on Thank my person. You. On your, on on your, your person. nether region. Yeah. So no. it went okay. It went okay. In and out. I was. I, I got two hours of parking because I didn't know how long it was going to be. I got there. I think at twenty after ten. Parked the car. I was out of there by. 20 after 11. Yeah. You were like texting us from, I felt like you were lying on bed. Uh, Almost uh, live I was tweeting. like, I swear to God, if I get a photo, I'm going to be <laughs> so mad at you. Like Every time it would bing and it would say Brett's name, I was like, oh, do I open this? Like, yeah. what's he sharing with us right now about this vasectomy he's I know undergoing? Some, I know some people are a little uncomfortable with the topic, but, you know, it's early enough. Um, There was smoke involved. Yes, so I wasn't entirely sure how the procedure would go, but uh, there was, I believe there was one either incision or puncture, and then the tubes were, you know, he took care of them however he did, and then to seal them, he cauterized them. There's so I'm the sitting word. There, So there's a television, as our listeners have told us in the past, there is a television hanging from the ceiling, and I was able to choose an episode of Seinfeld or Home Improvement or one of two episodes of Mr. Bean. I went with Seinfeld. And even though there is a vasectomy episode, it's actually the episode he has is the massage one, the one where George Costanza is concerned about whether or not it's going to... I can't get a massage from a man. Mm -hmm. And then it moved for him, and that made him (laughs) uncomfortable. So I was sitting there trying to focus on that, even though I could see some smoke rising from... (laughs) down there and uh, I could smell it and I thought well that's disconcerting but George is so uncomfortable right now as he gets a massage so let's just focus on that and I'm trying to not to giggle too abruptly or too forcefully because he's sure he's handling some delicate things so you're just awake the whole time yep there was a there was a spray 
anesthetic that he used in just a local anesthetic. And uh, he said at one point, okay, I'm going to touch this now. Can you feel that? Nope. All right. And then he went to work. Ten minutes later, he was done. I'm going to take this on a side rant right now, but they have made this procedure super comfortable. You've got a spray. You don't need a needle. You're in and out. Women have been giving birth for thousands of years, and we still cannot figure out a way for that to hurt. Oh, just a little bit less. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Like, isn't epidural? No. No. That doesn't really cover well, it. Well, it covers it for some, but no, like everyone has a different experience, but I've been thinking this for a long time. I don't understand. I, I feel like there's been like somewhere in a back room, thousands of doctors working on how to make the vasectomy much more pleasant. But on the other front, like I would, hey, maybe there's just only one way to get come out and that's how it's going to go. But this pleasant experience, I get it. I'm not comparing apples to oranges, but. But it's a, it's a good point that you, you raise because I think, and this is the reason why I wanted to talk about this on the air is a lot of guys probably are either reluctant to do it sure. or are scared to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think that if that's the case, then don't be scared. It was, yes, there was, there were moments of discomfort, but I mean, I was in more pain when I got my tattoo mm-hmm. or when I used to have Or like these, a tooth pulled maybe. Even. Yeah. Yeah. Like there are, there are way more uncomfortable things and yeah, I was kind of tender and a little sore. For a few hours, and I'm going to take it easy. The instructions are no nothing strenuous for a couple of weeks, uh, so I'm just going to follow the instructions, and it and it'll be fine. And then, then that way, my girlfriend doesn't have to worry about dealing with whatever form of birth control that causes all kinds of side effects. That, right. that you know, this way we're both good. And uh, oh, and you were asking how long uh, the rocket has been grounded for a week. Mm. Yeah, mm. uh, I'm more concerned about the name we've given ourselves. <laughs> That's well, not, I'm, I'm trying to find Seinfeldian language. I know. Well, I understand. I understand. It just was really like the rocket uh, <laughs> has been grounded. <laughs> You should put that on a T-shirt. Uh, we wanted to talk later on about the T-shirt that you wore yesterday. Oh, but yeah. In, in terms of Seinfeldian language, I was curious if you were speaking about yourself in the third person. Brett is getting nervous <laughs> with the smoke coming, but you, you, you left that alone. And Loren, I have connections over at St. Boniface Hospital uh, Research Center. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'd like a lab? I'd like a lab. To start doing some research because I feel as though they could like if dip- you were able to come up with some sort of pain control mechanism, whether it be a drug, some sort of physical therapy or combination of the two. I'm thinking more like would, a shoot that you would attach to my body. Oh, now and you're talking about a physical device. Out, <laughs> it would come out the shoot. It would just you know, come like, out. A, like a trap door. Maybe that's more of an Elon <laughs> Musk like an attachment. type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea, Loren. So, yeah, and the, the, the well, yeah, we'll save the T-shirt observation for a little later, but just wanted to say thanks to Dr. Billenkoffer. As listeners promised, you'll be in and out. It was easy, and, uh, yeah, 612 on 680 CJOB. <laughs> That was a that was a dramatic the shift there. The rocket returns if, in three minutes. Oh no, I feel like I feel stupid because I wasn't trying to go third person on that. I wasn't giving myself some sort of awesome nickname. The rocket has been grounded. Oh, Do you lay down, buddy? Because that's happening. Well, that's people of my age will know uh, rockets away. As the reader, I think it was grade one or grade two with Mister Muggs. Anybody know? I'm the only one. Two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. If you remember, rockets away, and Mister Muggs, the Shaggy Dog, in uh, our readers uh, in elementary school once upon a time, he was awesome dog, sheep dog, I think.
Rockets was the R- name of the dog? Rockets or... Away was the name of the book. Okay. Mr. Muggs was the dog. Was the dog. Okay. Yes. I, I need to look that up now. Mr. Muggs. Mackley, McGarry, McNabb. It's a horrible image. If you go to cjob.com, you can also see it on our 680CJOB Instagram. And I think it's important to see it because it's such a terrible crime, Loren McNabb, this statue that has been... Decapitated. The head has been removed from it in what appears to be a theft and a vandalism. The head removed from the statue along with its cross. The statue has sat outside the Ukrainian Catholic Metropolitan Cathedral of St. Vladimir and Olga on McGregor Street for decades now. And to hear more about what that statue means to that community and their hope of restoring it uh, to its former glory, we're joined by Right Reverend Monsignor Michael Boyachok. Good morning. Good morning. So tell us what you first noticed or what staff first noticed. It was Tuesday that you got into work and and the head was missing? Yes, uh, it was a devastating sight to see the uh, head of this beautiful statue being uh, removed. And uh, where it is now, we have no idea, but uh, probably in some uh, somebody trying to buy it, I guess. Monsignor Michael, uh, this is a, a devastating turn of events. I was just in, lucky enough to be in Europe and, and in Croatia specifically, and you see these statues and these buildings that are hundreds of years old that have survived war, conflicts uh, uh, amongst uh, people, civil wars, uh, religious wars, and here we are in Winnipeg, a statue that's 35 years old, and yeah. somebody could do something like this. It, it, it just uh, it, it, It's shameful for our, our community to imagine that this has happened in my mind it is you're, you're absolutely correct and uh, uh, it was it was it was pure vandalism and uh, they said that there was about five young people between uh, 15 and 18 that crawled up on that a statue and and, uh, and uh, just to remove the head I don't even know how they did that but uh, because it's a, it's a it's a statue made out of um, bronze you know and uh, to re- to decapitate a statue like that is just a, uh, well, it's a sinful event, to say the least. What's the connection to the Pope for this particular statue? Yes, the Pope was, when the Pope was here, the, the late uh, Pontiff uh, John Paul II, who's now, can- he's now canonized as a saint, he was here in 1984, and his first stop was at the cathedral, and the statue was in the cathedral, and he blessed it. Uh, uh, for us uh, when he came to Winnipeg in, in that time. So that was a great honor. I was uh, in charge of that whole visit of his, and it was a, a, a wonderful event. Uh, but now when we put it in its in its uh, proper place outside, to have it decomposed like that is just uh, uh, an unexplainable event. You mentioned that it appears to be five suspects. Is that because that's what witnesses have seen, or have the police been able to actually track down the people responsible here? No, they went. There was a lady that lives across the street at the villa, and she <clears throat> heard some com- com- commotion, and she looked and there was, was these young teenagers playing around, and she thought they were playing around because that's not the first time that the people, these kids, have been around the statue, but here they were. They were really destroying it and decomposing it to get to get the head and uh, to get some money, I guess. Monsignor Michael, what's the future of the statue if this head and 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 these parts of the of the statue that were taken are not returned? Yeah, that's a very good question. If the head is not found, then uh, then uh, if if uh, the uh, construction people from 
from Germany that made it. It was it was um, um, designed by Leo Mold, a very famous artist, and he had all his work done in Germany. And, uh, and uh, so we're going to contact uh, those people there. If we do not uh, find the head, then uh, if they can uh, if they can reconstruct the head for us, uh, I don't know how they can do that, but if they can and ship the head to us, then we would have it reconstructed here. Do you have a message, say there is someone listening or might have an idea of the whereabouts of this head or if it hasn't been sold to for scrap metal or other, what would you say to them? Are you looking for punishment or just to get... No, we're, we're making an appeal to, uh, to receive the head back. There's no repercussions from our part. If the police want to take this further, that's up to them. But we, we would be grateful if we got the head back. Uh, and the trezup, that was the other part of the statue that was missing. It's a, it's a cross-like form. If we received both of those items back, we would be grateful. Do you have a cost for this kind of loss, Reverend? Uh, well, I, uh, to get the statue, to get a statue like that put up there now would be about $50,000. Wow. Yeah. And you also held an annual service at the statue yes, every summer, right? Yes, at the end of July. It's St. Vladimir and Olga Day. And uh, we would all go outside with uh, the congregation, have a service there and a, a re-blessing of, of water. And uh, it was uh, quite an eventful uh, uh, service. But uh, now we'll probably go and have the service there anyway um, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, the head off. But, uh, but what, what the future is, it all depends. If we, can retain, if we can reclaim the head again, then we'll get somebody here to fix it. I'm sure there's somebody here in Winnipeg that is knowledgeable on how to do that. But that's the whole question. The right Reverend Monsignor Michael Boyachuk from the Ukrainian Catholic Metropolitan Cathedral of Saints Volodymyr and Olga on McGregor Street, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Monsignor Michael, thank you very much for this. We appreciate the time. Thank you very much for your call. Thank you. Yeah, there's a dozens of people who gathered outside City Hall last night. They're trying to convince officials there and the mayor and council to drop a plan to hire a private contractor to clear out any homeless camps that might emerge over the summer in our city. So as we told you last week on CGOB, the city has put out what many would consider to be an unusual RFP. That's a request for proposals for a private contractor to not only clean up used needles, because we know meth and other drugs become become a huge problem in the city. But they're also asking this company or whoever might come forward to submit a contract to remove any tarps, tents, or sleeping bags left in public spaces where the homeless might sleep. Alexa Legere is the coordinator of the Mama Bear clan, and she says she has no problem with the needle cleanup, that the city needs it, but says she can't support any notion that would dismantle homeless camps. We're hoping that the proposal is denied and gone. We do not want this at all. This is unacceptable. It's uh, making people fear the homeless, which is not what we want to do. We want to be there to support them. Under the RFP that went out last week, the plan would be to have a contractor in place by about August. So the city is still very in the early stages of accepting those proposals. So Global's Merrick Takash went out to speak to some of Winnipeg's more vulnerable to hear what they say about this plan. The riverbanks have become a gathering place for some Winnipeggers. We went out of the way because we were kicked out everywhere else. But blankets, tents and tarps will soon be dismantled. At least down there for making camp we can have a bowl of water, wash up and look human when we come to greet the rest of y'all, right? 
And it makes you feel a little more human when you're in a little social group rather than displaced all over the place. Deborah Siemens asks for change at the corner on Logan and Disraeli during the day, but she spends most of her nights along the river. But when I stayed here, my living condition was a couple carts, a tarp, some cardboard boxes and boards. If I could make a roof so people didn't toss things onto my head through it at night, right? I think um, as a community and as a city, the strategy needs to be how to better resource those people. Homeless advocate Adrian Dudek believes creative services should be offered to people choosing not to sleep in shelters. I think you're asking people who are not always in control of their own substance use or their own mental health to, like I said, fit into existing resources. So I think we've really got to work to be innovative and creative with services we can offer people. The city is looking for a private sector company to help with the task of removing the temporary shelters and disposing of sharp items like needles. Originally, the Bear Clan was very interested in bidding for the contract as their volunteers have lots of experience with collecting needles and sharps. But when they learned that the proposal included taking away blankets, tents and tarps, they told the city they were not interested. I would not be comfortable just going and taking away something that I view as garbage, they view as treasure. And so I don't want to be the one to take that away from them. If you take away their means of shelter, I mean, without offering a substitute, then you're, you're causing greater harm. The Bear Clan leader says the city should explore a model that includes offering low-income housing to people before taking their belongings away. This is a tough one, I think, because, you'll, you know, depending on where these camps set up, they might be outside of business, they've been in vestibules of, of you know, like in the lobbies of uh, businesses in Osborne Street. You've seen them where, uh, Greg? In Whittier Park, was it? Whittier Park along the river. I've seen them along Taché sure. uh, at the base of the new uh, Taché uh, Belvedere. And I've, I've seen them in other cities uh, across North America. This is not exclusive to Winnipeg. I'm having a hard time with this one as well, you know, but uh, James uh, Favel of the Bear Clan, who we heard in that last clip, he talks about trash versus treasure. And if we are... Really uh, looking at ourselves in the mirror this morning to have this discussion and to speak to one another. Who are these people harming? That's right. That's a question I have. And once these camps become out of control and we've got a crime issue versus uh, some people might say squatting uh, is is on the borderline of a crime. I I don't see it that way. It might be someone who will argue, depending where they are, that it would hurt business if, if they're set up at different locations that might prohibit other people from feeling like they want to I walk that's through di- that space. And I agree with you, and I, but I think that's a different issue than along the riverbank. Sure. Um, and he's right. Like, who wants to have the job of going in and taking that person's tarp? You might view it as a tarp or a dirty blanket. That might be the only thing they have that keeps them warm or the rain off the head at, their head at night. And we spoke to Adrian Dudek last week from Main Street Project. And the whole idea, shelters aren't for everyone. And so it might be an intermediate step for some. Uh, but another step may be, you know, Outreach, which is what the Main Street Project does a lot of, and maybe we need other organizations to get out, to, to, to get on bended knee and to sit next to and with these people and find out what they need and to find out where they would prefer to be. And the answer may be they might prefer just to be there. And if they're not causing any problems, if they're not causing any legal issues, 
I'm not sure we should have a problem with it. I'm still batting it around in my head, so forgive me for not having a concrete response to this question this morning. Well, when you said that there were homeless camps in Whittier Park, I remembered when I went for a walk in Whittier Park, the first time I went for a walk would have been last summer, and I was walking through the park, and it was a lovely park. It was a gorgeous day, nice green space, but we were the only people in that park because it's very secluded. Mm-hmm. And as we were walking along the riverbank, uh, which is sort and of protected by trees, Whittier I thought, Park what? is where? Sorry, just it's in St. Boniface. It's off Tache. It's sort of the north end of Tache. It's right by, sort of behind Fort Gibraltar. Like That's where they right. like where they do uh, Festival de Voyager right. area. Okay. Yeah. So sorry, it's, you were uh, walking through. So we're walking through and. I thought, well, I wonder if there's anybody in the trees along the river. And had I come across a camp like that or had I, had I seen some people in there, knowing that it was just me and my girlfriend at the time, I would have been uncomfortable and it maybe would have felt unsafe. So even if they're not harming people, could the, the perception that you could be harmed, is that enough to, to, to make people say, let's get rid of these camps? I, I think don't know either. A, I think it's a valid question. It's a completely valid question. We've had the discussion with regard to the library. We know that libraries around the city have become a place of refuge for those that are without a home. And the security measures at the Millennium Library downtown in particular have rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, But what comes first? The overall safety and feeling of safety of the public at large or the need for certain aspects and certain parts of our society to have certain things and availability of certain things and access to that facility for a different reason. I, 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 it's, it's something that we're going to be batting around for some time now, I think. And the assumption that with a vulnerable population, you suddenly have crime. I'm not sure I appreciate that link either. Like often the person who's keeping, say, the Millennium Library situation, they might have people walking in who are having weapons seized off mm-hmm. them or things they were using for weapons. Well, in many cases, the person who had those, it's for their own safety. They weren't holding those weapons so they could go out and commit a crime. It was just that so if they're sleeping on the street, they wouldn't feel, you know, if they came under attack. But if I'm sitting next to you and you have one of these weapons and I'm sitting next to you at the Millennium Library. Or in a park or wherever. What, how do I feel about that? Uh, that that my 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 perceived and feeling of safety is also critical as well For as sure. someone who's using that facility. We just got a text here, and I think it's a great point. People have camped at Whittier Park for the length of time here is critical: hundreds of years. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb coming up at nine thirty-six. We're going to speak to the president of the University of Manitoba eSports Club because they are hosting Manitoba's first ever eSports Expo this weekend at the U of M. Cool. That sounds very cool. eSports is, because for me, I need this clarified. Like, it's anyone playing a video game? But Yeah, they play competitively. competitively. They play against each other. Yep. And big money sometimes. Yeah, they fill arenas. They fill stadiums. Around the world, this is huge money. It's to the point where the the athletes, as they refer to them, get to a point. I think like twenty four years is where you, where they have to start thinking about retirement. Yeah, that's the peak. Yeah, because, because that's when their coordination starts to drop off. Hand eye coordination, all the different things that go along with it. I'm still a button masher after all these years of mashing <laughs> buttons. And, I'm the same and, way. I'm yeah? the exact same way. Oh, well, man. There's no finesse in my game at all. <laughs> exactly. Right there with you. So we're talking our favorite video games. Jeff Braun's here, Cameron Poitras. That was the voice of Jeff Fortier. 
Portress, I think you said the other day, maybe you did. Do you still play video games? Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, what, I was what, playing some yesterday, actually. What do you play? Uh, well, um, I'm I'm kind of playing like these sort of these old like Super Nintendo games and stuff like that. They're kind of there's kind of new takes on them now on like uh, PlayStation Four and stuff like that, where you can just download these games, sell them for like fifteen bucks. So I'm playing one of those right now. But I which one? Oh, uh, it's called Owlboy. Actually, it's actually pretty cool. Um, Owlboy. Owlboy. Yeah. And so like, I'm playing that to it to an owl. Yeah, you're like, it, like an owl. You're like this little owl guy, and you kind of fly around, and it's kind of like a, an old school sort of like side scroll and stuff like that. But I don't know, like I like the last God of War on PlayStation Four is probably probably the best game I've ever played, which was pretty sweet. So, but are you playing those old games on a new system? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's like these indie games that are being made now, where they're kind of like doing these sort of retro style mm-hmm. games that they can make for really cheap. But you know, those styles of games are still pretty good. You know what I mean? Like, well, uh, if, just, if they're done properly. I'm because we just got a switch in our house at Christmas time for the kids, so they share the one switch, yeah, which you can download games yeah. onto it. Yes. Or I don't, I don't even understand how it works, but the de- they do have Super Mario Brothers and all the old ones on yeah. it, and which I've been loving again. But it's the new controller, and I'm so mad at myself because I keep saying to my kids, like, "Mommy used to be really good at this, <laughs> and I cannot figure out. Like, all I want is that simple rectangle back in my life it's again. Too many buttons. Well, just too many buttons. It's 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 more condensed. It's streamlined. I get it. It's probably more ergonomic, but it does not work for me. Here's the thing: I was playing NHL 2018 or whatever iteration yeah. is out now that the boys have, and they were destroying me and Brendan looks at me and goes hey dad you know you can play with the 1994 controller you can configure it yeah, that way yeah, and you yeah. go in the configurations and they take away all the extra buttons for you and you just play it like you did when you're playing Sega Genesis back in 1985 like with basically four different buttons and nice. so that's the way I play now I don't need all the extra ones because I don't know what they do anyway they Is that just, on an they're Xbox? just getting away that's on Xbox uh, I don't even know what's What's the new Xbox that's now? One? Xbox One. Yeah, Xbox One. Yeah. So does that on yours on a one mm-hmm. or a 360? Oh, uh, one. Okay. Yes. So I played NHL 15 or 16 on a 360, and the buttons, and my girlfriend's kids won't tell me what the buttons do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, it's like, well, how do I do this? And I'm like, mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, job. you just don't want to tell me. That's not their job. <laughs> Are you still playing games the same way you did, though? Like, would you put the same amount of time into it now than you d- that you did at 16? That's the reason why I don't play video games anymore, because I love video games, but I used to play them obsessively, uh, where it would be this all-consuming kind of vortex. And do you think you still would now, like that, if you let it back into your life? Yeah, yeah, yeah because the games, like, I, 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 I love the way that all these new games, they just look extraordinary and so immersive. And I would like to try them out, but I know that once I dive into that world, then everything else would be lost. So I just, uh, I have uh, a, a Super an SNES Classic at home that I got for Christmas for my dad, and I've played that a little bit, and I still pull out the old Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Super Spike V-Ball, by yes. the way, is my favorite That's a good one. video game of all time. And I'll play pull that out and play it for half hour, 45 minutes, but like I remember when I got a Nintendo 64, all I did for hours every single day was play Donkey Kong 64. 64, and it's all I could think about. Well, our kids right now, or my oldest anyway, is are obsessed with Fortnite, and um, I don't understand it at all, and I've made no effort to, which is probably not a good thing. Yeah, but you should I, probably I, uh, like investigate I watch it what they're and doing. I check yeah. it. No, I let, they have to play it in the same room. Like I see what they're doing it, but I don't. I haven't tried to play. My husband does. He'll play with them, and he knows what's up with the game and all the rest. But it's to, it's the point where like I set the timer on the microwave because I'll give them say you got twenty minutes to play, and as soon as I say your time's up. 
it's just like a full like that isn't even exactly exactly right and it's insane and so i understand that thing that like i don't know i understand that these makers have created a game that is addictive and that's the entire point of it but as a parent it's like super frustrating so now they only are allowed to touch the switch on wednesday nights and sometimes on weekends it's not just the new games though uh, brett your mom and my mom were both addicted to tetris back in the day my mom oh. would play tetris for hours at a time my remember my mom taking me to the uh was it what was the arcade in the brandon gallery when ms pac-man came out and my mom would spend probably 50 quarters on ms pac-man hour after hour she was young at the time and, and she loved video games so uh this is not a new thing it's just that the technology being so incredible at home yeah it is brand new for a lot of us mm-hmm. and when we sit down with our kids it's like I would have given my left leg to have this when I was a kid. But what we had was super awesome when we were kids because that's what we knew. That was as good as it got Ex- back then. Except for now, you can tell, like, the, with this whole esports thing, which I just learned about yeah. in the last few months, like, the whole idea that you can create a career out of it is now a counter argument for every kid out there. Like, you're like, get outside. They're like, get outside. I, I could sure. be a millionaire in five years if you just <laughs> shush up and let me play this game. Like, I'm, not, I'm not sure athletes is the right word for these, <laughs> no, for these kids. No. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, I don't think sports. Was the right <laughs> no, <one. laughs> yeah. Do you get sweaty when you play? Well, so some I used to get pretty intense when I would play some of these games. Maybe sweat from the like anxiety. Some people, sure. some people get so angry when they play, though. Oh my oh, god! Like so angry. Oh. Also, have you ever played the, the, the what was the um, the Wii the Wii Sports? That yeah. was yeah, a that's good exercise. We have the yeah. Wii Sports, the, the bowling and the, the boxing, boxing was a huge workout. Oh, there are lots of great games. Uh, my then. grandma was a uh, Hall of Famer uh, bingo athlete back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> how many how many dabbers? How many how, how many cards? Oh, Jeff? At once? Yes. Eight, eight or ten or twelve? Ooh, she oh, was a player. She was hardcore. So in the meantime, we had a conversation last hour about video games because at 9.35 we're going to talk about the first ever eSports Expo coming to Winnipeg this weekend at the University of Manitoba where the eSports club there is going to host this event. eSports, by the way, it's competitive video gaming. They face off against each other for prizes, often for big prize money. They fill arenas, they fill stadiums. So we were having a conversation about our favorite video games, and we talked about our video, favorite video games, but we got all sorts of feedback from you on various various platforms from years gone past, from current. Eve, for example, was saying that he plays a game. He used to be... Donkey Kong Country on the Super Nintendo, and now it's a game called Forza Horizon 4 on Xbox One. And he says it's where I can safely let out the road rage that gets pent up. It's one of those free roam type things where you can do absolutely anything and you want. And he's a truck driver, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he probably has all kinds of yeah, road rage. He's a good driver up. by day, video gaming at night. Watch out. I used to play a game on the Xbox with my buddy Kent called Simpsons Road Rage. I believe it was fashioned after a game called Crazy Taxi. Where you, mm. you, you, have, you you're essentially a driver. You have to run around Springfield and pick up fares, but it was uh, it was a similar kind of thing where you could do anything you wanted. You could run over your favorite characters mm. from The Simpsons, and they would make comedic noises as you would hit them. Yes, and, I remember uh, this. Yeah, right. you could drive through buildings. I forgot all about that game. It was intense, and it was so much fun. I would always drive uh, auto. 
in his school bus. I would drive the school bus. Get Blotto like Otto. That's right. He, when you when you uh, pick him, he pulls up onto the screen and says, All right! All right! So <laughs> the limitations was, in the dialogue in those games were incredible, right? They maybe had like, I don't know, maybe about 100 words between all the characters. It was pretty limited. Uh, there was a fair amount of... I mean, it would get repetitive, but, but this for the this for the Xbox. So by then, the technology had uh, advanced somewhat. Uh, not to the extent that it does now. Like I know the sports games now. All oh, the play-by-play of all the team names is incredible. All the players, everything, unless you customize yourself and then you become sort of a rando, random player. But yeah, the depth to which they go to make these things realistic is unbelievable. Paul agrees with you on text, by the way, about the Simpsons games uh, being the best. And uh, I mentioned that I was a button masher, remain a button masher to this day, and I have a kindred spirit in uh, Melissa, who sent a text message. She says, uh, I grew up playing Asteroids on Atari, and of course you had to mash those buttons really quick to try and uh, fire down and uh, gun down those aliens dropping upon you. Oh, Is that what they were? I guess it was, right? Uh, well, were they, would they not have been Asteroids? Uh, maybe they were. I don't know. What am I thinking of then? Space Invaders is mm-hmm. what I'm picturing, not asteroids. I was a Galaga guy. Okay. The game console at the bar or whatever. Yep. Leo Ardillies and I would dump quarter after quarter after quarter into the <laughs> Galaga. That was always still terrible. I went to Florida when I was 13 or 14, and we stayed outside of Orlando at a place called Cocoa Beach, and we would drive. The nearest shopping mall was in a place called Merritt Island, so we went there and I actually had two video game experiences there. One, I went to see the movie with Fred Savage, The Wizard. And Lorena, I know you're a fan of Super Mario Brothers 2. Well, that was the movie which debuted of... Super Mario Brothers 3. Mm-hmm. So it was a wonderful advertising campaign for Nintendo because it made every kid who saw that movie desperately want to get their hands on that game. But uh, that was a silly movie where he was a video, he, there was a video game wizard in it, and there was okay. one jerk who said, he had the power glove. Do you remember the yes. power glove? Yeah. I love the power glove. And now that you say this, I realize the game I've been playing for the last few weeks is Super Mario 3, not Super Mario 2. Oh. This is how well I know things, folks. That's okay. They're all it's a, they're both excellent As games. As you said that, I was like, isn't that the one with the tail where he can fly? Yeah. yeah that's right. But the, the other video game experience, they had this arcade, and they had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game. It wasn't available yet in Winnipeg, so I didn't even know it was a thing. So I was so excited and I remember, I believe I played as Donatello and I'm sitting there, my parents gave me 20 bucks and told me to spend it responsibly. So I spent it all, of course, on one video game. I was playing with three kids who didn't know who they were. I don't think we even spoke to each other. We just sort of I I walked up and started playing with these guys because it was a four-player game and uh, we almost defeated the game. So there was it was a strange sort of camaraderie and community with where we didn't know each other. None of us knew each other from what I could tell. I think we were all tourists, but we were all playing this game with a lineup forming behind us, but we weren't letting go of our spot until I ran out of that $20. I confess to playing uh, Guitar Hero, the arcade version, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport for probably about an hour in a suit and tie. Really? On, my, on a business trip because <laughs> it was calling me. I didn't have it at home yet, and I had to play, had to play Rocky Like a Hurricane with <laughs> by the Scorpions. Come on. <laughs> boy. How'd you do? Well, I eventually got through it without any problem, but it, it took me a little bit of time. 
This game will not be played at the Manitoba <laughs> Esports Expo. However, I still love hearing this tune. What is it? It's a version I'm not familiar. Oh, that that sounds familiar. It's from Mortal Kombat. It's actually the theme from the Mortal Kombat movie, which was a very popular video game in the 1990s, and the series continues to be very popular. Remember when that game first out, how much controversy there was? Because it had actual blood. Blood! You could oh kill my gosh, your blood. Now look at things. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but the fatalities were fun. But hey, we're talking video games this morning a lot, because happening this weekend at the University of Manitoba, the first ever eSports Expo in our province happening tomorrow and Friday, the Manitoba eSports Expo, and it's hosted by the University of Manitoba eSports Club. So we are joined live on 680 CJOB by Melanie Penner, who is the president of the University of Manitoba eSports Club. She joins us now. Melanie, good morning to you. Good morning. Esports. E <laughs> in stereo. In stereo. <laughs> esports and an esports club. This sounds new to me, but is it? Um, well, it's actually really popular among, uh, among millennials. Uh, it's not actually very well well known or like there's no market here in Winnipeg for it. Like no one's really done an event that we're doing. Um, but it is really popular in some countries and in some cities like in the States, for example. Um, but it's not really tapped into Canada at all. Why is that? Why hasn't it come here yet? I think maybe it's just because the market is mostly in Los Angeles or New York, uh, but there are some uh, some colleges and universities in Canada that actually have invested in esports and in esports programs, and they have like fully fledged arenas and 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 stuff like that that they that they already have. Whereas in Winnipeg, we don't have anything at all, so it's um, it, it's somewhat of a loss. But uh, this event is going to try and turn things around. Uh, aren't esports coming to the Olympics? Yeah, so there has been talks with the uh, the Paris Olympics that are coming up in the next couple of years. They they had uh, sat down as a group and said, you know, esports is on the rise. Do we want to include that in, into the Olympics? And and that's why the the Canadian Sports Center uh, Manitoba, who partnered with us for this event, they saw that vision. They they heard about it, and they they work with Olympic and Paralympic athletes, and they were trying to see how can we incorporate esports or or some to bring more people into maybe start like Canada's premier esports team competing at the Olympics and and they came to us and and we had sat down with them and discussed this event and and now it's sort of been it's now coming more into the talks with schools of trying to you know implement programs and try and get these kids trained up for the Olympics potentially you just mentioned something that you know I know when I was growing up my parents would not appreciate appreciated and that's the connection of school and video games and the idea that you just said pairing up with schools even the idea that the U of M has a an esports club because there's that perception out there that that the video game is I don't want to say a waste of time but a time sucker right like it's just you know mm -hmm. get, get get back to your room and study as opposed to study the video game so what are we yeah. talking about here when we say pairing up with schools well so in schools for example uh, our teams that compete we play for like the collegiate star league or college lol or tespa league where they have um, they have school teams competing for scholarship money. So kids who are really good at the game, who play on a team, they can win scholarship money to pay for their schooling. So that's basically an incentive that gives kids to want to come to school. They play on a team if they're really good, and then they get that money 
back to pay for their school, which is expensive. Um, and they have full ride scholarships in the states already, like four year, like four year scholarships where they pay for everything, and you just play on a team to win money that'll go back towards the school. So they have all these programs already set up, um, and 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 now they're also implementing um, like a high school esports league. They they started one this year in Winnipeg, but I know that there there's like a national one where kids can try and get into specific schools because they're you know good at video games and it's basically like traditional sports you get you know get a contract you sign you start playing on a team and you're representing the school and i think that's something that's just becoming reality now within high schools and now within universities across north america so for somebody who is not familiar with esports as a thing what what would someone see if they walk into a venue and there is an esports event happening so with esports specifically, it's it's usually like you're in a really big arena and you have this big screen where people can watch uh, the best of the best play. Um, and of course, like if you don't know that much about esports, it might be difficult for you to be able to keep up with what's going on in the screen because usually with esports, a lot of the games that are played are really strategic and um, you kind of need a bit of like a, a backstory of like what what's going on in the game. Um, but it, but it's just an amazing environment to be in because you're around a community of people who all share the same passion and drive for esports and for the players that are playing. And it's just everyone is so friendly about it too. So even if you don't understand, they're always so welcoming to teach you how how it goes, or you know, try and incorporate you know, building communities and friendships. It's just something that I've I've been I've played sports my entire life, but I've never been in that sort of environment where I felt so welcome and so, you know, you know, even if you don't understand what's going on, they kind of, you know, pull you in. And I think that's something that um, I'm not saying is lacking in, in traditional sports, but it's, it's something that's really been growing, especially online, because these sports is electronic sports. So it's so much easier to connect with people online. And I think it just brings the community together. No, no. Now, Melanie, um, sports can get pretty intense, and I used to play video games with a couple of guys. I won't out them on the radio here. I'm very tempted to do it. I'm a button masher, self-proclaimed button masher to try and get things accomplished. But these guys would go smashy, smashy with the remote controllers if they lost a game they thought they should win. Do you see any of that in this competition? Um, well, I mean, from uh, from going to a couple of local tournaments, I have not witnessed that yet. Um, but I, I know at least at the professional level, um, mostly when it comes to PC gaming, uh, the people the people that I see they they are usually fairly calm. Of course, the games get really intense when you're going to like a game five and. You know, a million dollars is like the prize pool, and like you want to, you you're you're trying your best, and you lose a game. Of course, it's frustrating, but I've never seen someone get that upset. I mean, there's always those some people that may not be able to control uh, c- control themselves, but for the most part, the professionals you see on stage, they I mean, they are professionals. They that's what they do for a job, um, so they. They, they know kind of like their limits, but I've, I've actually never seen that at a local level either. So, I mean, maybe with my brother here and there when we play <laughs> at home, but other than that, I've, I've never seen anyone get like really upset to the point where they start breaking the equipment. So you're a student at the U of M. Do you see, like, what are you actually studying at school? And then what do you see yourself doing? Is this something you think that you're, you know, selling to your family members is something you'd like to do as a full-time job, which would be video game? 
Yeah, so um, I I went to school before that for business, and I went to uh, U of M to uh, continue uh, continue my studies. And I've been a huge esports advocate for years. And and what I'd like to do is I'd like to have the school sort of recognize esports as like a legitimate um, part of the um, sports division and set up something in, in that's similar and have these kids be able to play for scholarship money and be able to have a facility for them to train out of and just essentially build, you know, a, you know, a business or something out of it because there's so much demand for esports in the city and there's not many opportunities for kids to showcase their talent unless they go to a school. But there aren't many like local tournaments that happen either. And so that's just sort of what my team and I are, are working toward. It's just, I mean, this esports expo specifically is for that, to see the demand and to see sort of how many people are interested and, and is this something we can build up that would be, you know, a major event in Canada, for example. Melanie, pro athletes, you know, they, they often use their own equipment. Golfers have their own clubs. Tennis players have their own rackets, etc. Do pro gamers, do they use their own, bring their own controllers? Because I know sometimes going to my buddies as a kid, there, there'd be subtle differences with the controller based on how much they abused it. And it might not play the way that I wanted it to play. Yeah, no, uh, most of the time, at least uh, for, for console games, most people like to bring their own equipment whenever they come to events. And it's usually more like the comfort comfortability uh, aspect of it. Um, but most of the time, whenever there is a local event, most stuff is provided anyway. But I, I uh, even for myself, who plays a lot of PC games, I like to have my own equipment, my keyboard, my mouse, my headset, because I'm familiar with it. Um but that that's just me. And I, I think, you know, it's also dependent on, you know, if you use somebody else's equipment, it may not feel the same. It may not work the same if someone uh, decides to, like, I don't know, throw it against the wall or something. Uh, but for the most part, most people bring their own equipment because that's where they feel most comfortable. Um, so, yeah. All right. Melanie Penner, president of the University of Manitoba Esports Club, joining us live on CJOB. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. So once again, the Canadian Sports Centre Manitoba and the University of Manitoba Esports Club hosting the province's first ever esports expo this weekend, tomorrow and Saturday at the PVP Cyber Lounge at the University of Manitoba's multi-purpose room and university centre. So it's happening tomorrow from 4 until 10 p.m. and then Saturday from noon until 10 p.m. You can get more information at the University of Manitoba Esports Club website, which is, oh, I had it here. U of M U of M B esports.com. Brett, you walk into your house, say, go back 20 years. Yeah. 20 years old, say to your mom, I'm dropping out of college because I'm going to be an esport athlete. Where does that go? Oh, met with laughter, derision. <laughs> what are you doing? There would be discipline. <laughs> yeah. But when you see that these they, they can either become a professional gamers sure. or maybe not even a professional gamer, you can just start a YouTube channel or I guess Twitch is the, the, the main site where they watch people play video games. And people, you play video games and people log on and watch you. Yes. And you get paid handsomely for it. It really is uh, unbelievable how far it's come. And one of those friends uh, wants wanted to start gaming tournaments at 
restaurants and bars around the city 20 years ago. I should have recognized what a visionary he was at the time. Yeah, it's cool. So the games, by the way, that will be played, that will be featured are Overwatch, League of Legends, Counter-Strike, Global Offensive, and Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Just some of the featured game titles. This sounds like a really cool event, and if you're into video games at all, uh, they're going to have virtual reality stuff, tabletop games, and much more. So again, tomorrow and Saturday at the U. Right on. 947 on 680 CJOB. Jeff Courier joins us in a moment as we head out to some Mike Tyson's Punch out. Loren, did you play Punch oh, Out? Yeah. Yeah? I could have sung this by for you. Could you beat Mike Tyson? No. Really? No. You never beat Mike Tyson? I don't know. I don't think so. Oh. Well, he, if you could get past those first 90 seconds of round one, then you were in the clear. He was beatable, huh? Yeah, it took, took some doing, but if you can make it in those first 90 seconds, if he hits you, boom, you're done. You're out. Who was the, who was the, who was the, who did you have to beat to get to Mike Tyson? Uh, that was Super Macho Man. Super Macho Man. Yeah, Super Macho Man. Before that, it was Mr. Sandman. Because <laughs> he'd make you sleep. Yeah, he'd put you to sleep. <laughs> I don't have, I just want to preface what I'm about to say. Uh, I don't have the answers here, but there, I think there are some questions that need to be answered as it pertains to the future of transportation infrastructure in our city, specifically the Arlington Street Bridge. Next Tuesday, as Jeff Braun just told you, the City of uh, Winnipeg Standing Policy Committee on Infrastructure Renewal and Public Works will present a variety of reports on the current state of pending and active infrastructure initiatives. Projects on the agenda include an update on the Waverly Underpass construction, the Southwest Rapid Transit Corridor, as well as future infrastructure projects like the Chief Pegwis Extension and the replacement of Arlington Street Bridge. Several challenges facing the Arlington Bridge project are the need to replace the aging current structure and avoid an unplanned shutdown or permanent closure. What would the design of a new structure look like and cost? Where does this project fit on the list of major priorities? And perhaps most importantly, how to pay for this project? Most of these questions have already been answered. The city of Winnipeg is not allowed to run a deficit on yearly operations. We know that. But it does borrow money for major infrastructure projects. Just like many of us have credit cards or lines of credit, those borrowing tools come with a spending limit. The city of Winnipeg has about $150 million, think about that number for a bit, $150 million left on its self-imposed spending limit as part of its spending and debt reduction and control strategy. So if you think the like an like a underpass, like Waverly Underpass, was just shy of $150 million. I think it came in a little bit less than that. Yeah, but, but, it came but, under budget. but about, Making the point that a single project correct. could eat up all of that and then some, and that the city is mandated to balance its books every single year, which is also part of its financial conundrum. Correct. So there's a lot of restraints here, right? So that amount of money, that $150 million, will not likely pay for the city's portion of the Chief Pegwis Trail extension or the Keniston Boulevard expansion plans, which I didn't even mention to this point, let alone adding the construction of a new Arlington Bridge and or the Marion Street underpass project to the list of, of, of wants and needs. The Arlington Bridge project alone, even if the basic form of the bridge is built, as is being suggested by city engineers, will cost an estimated $318.7 million. 
That number is only valid if construction began next year. City engineers say there is an anticipated increase in cost of 3% per year. I'm going to put that in real number for you. That's $9 million in 2021 alone. And for every year, it remains a concept that 3% is in effect. So you're looking at 350 if we don't get this started within the next two, three years. Correct. $350 million. Huge amount of money, right? Is it big enough to examine the actuality, the real numbers surrounding, here we go, get ready for this, moving the rail yards all together? We've heard numbers bandied about $1 million, $2 billion or amounts which have been tossed around. But does anyone know for sure? Studies around answering that question have been planned and scrapped numerous times over the years, including right at the beginning of the, the Palster administration. The cost of replacing the bridge is just that. We know the funding formulas for projects like this are typically a three-way split between the three levels of government. What we don't know are the actual costs of moving the rail yards, the costs of new required infrastructure associated with such a move, of course, the cost of remediation of the land to make it usable. But we also don't genuinely know what sources of funding might be available to pay for such a project. This would change the city. There are rumors that up to 50% of the cost of a project like that is available from the federal government. And has anyone seen a study that thoroughly examines the economic benefits of redeveloping that massive piece of property so close to our downtown? Is now the time to explore these costs and benefits? That's that's the question I have before we build this new overpass. Well, they started exploring that when? Two or three years ago, and then that project got canceled once we had a change in election and, you know, there was a money set aside to do a genuine study on it. It's been something that's been discussed for decades in our city. And like I say, the, the numbers get tossed around, but no one has a, no, no engineers have sat down and figured out how much it would cost. It's almost like what it's it would too take. big for anyone to tackle. So it's like, let's just, it's so conceptual that we're not even going to go there. But when you take a single bridge this year, if construction started within the next 12 months mm-hmm. at 318 million, did you say? Yes. Yep. And so if a, a, a one third funding formula, mm-hmm which is typical city, province, federal, that's $100 million for, for the city. Well, even if you had a, a $1 billion project for the city to move the, the rail yards and there was provincial money or, pardon me, federal money that would pay for half of that, you might be talking about $250 million from the city to move the yards all together. And once again, what are the benefits of that? Now, I don't know if we have the time to even look into that, though, when it comes to the Arlington Bridge, because there's also a line in that report that gets delivered to City Hall next week that says that they'll, they'll work on maintenance for as long as they can and keeping it safe, but they don't have a timeline for, nope, for they don't. when that bridge will finally kind of say, yeah, like, I'm dead. <laughs> like, you cannot fix me how anymore. Sad, how sad would it be if that window of opportunity to examine this closed because of dereliction of duty, basically, because we didn't study it and because we let the Arlington overpass uh, dictate uh, it needs to be replaced now. And so we have to build it be- because we need to keep traffic moving. I, th- I think it would be a real shame. And if they moved, if they, let's say the, the yards did get moved, that would, uh, I guess, effectively eliminate the need for something in Marion too, right? Because I believe that line is CP. Very it depends if they're talking about just the east-west corridor that's or the north-south. Cho- that's a great so, question. Uh, but the, I think it'll open. you open another great 
question the, what other opportunities and what other infrastructure <laughs> is then not required. And there was a plan that was suggested, I want to say about two years ago for Marion Underpass that got completely kiboshed because it was $225 million or $219 million, like the, the cost of an underpass or a, or a bridge. I mean, you do three of them and you're at $1 billion. So I just, it's like this conversation keeps coming back around. The bridge stays broken and and barely And the rail yards remain, right? And the rail yards remain. If it hasn't surpassed its life cycle, we are certainly quickly approaching it. Next Tuesday, the City of Winnipeg Standing Policy Committee on Infrastructure Renewal and Public Works will present a variety of reports on the current state of pending and active infrastructure initiatives on that list is the future of the current Arlington Street overpass and what it should look like when and if it is replaced. Joining us is a member of that committee, City Councillor for North Kildonan, Jeff Prawadi. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, good morning. So uh, where are we in the life cycle of the Arlington Street Bridge and... What's next? Uh, the Arlington Bridge, yeah, the Arlington Bridge is really getting close to its end of life. I mean, uh, infrastructure lasts so long. It's a hundred plus year old bridge, um, and it's and it's a it's a very large structure. Unlike other bridges that you know simply cross the river or or a set of railway tracks, this crosses a whole rail yard. So it's uh, it's really a large structure. We had it briefly closed, I think, just a few weeks ago for some minor repairs that lasted a few hours. But the report states, you know, they don't know when the, that date will come, where it will, will it be more of a permanent situation. So how, how much longer can we really go around the clock on this one waiting for something to be done when it comes to a permanent solution? I mean, at the moment, uh, I mean, our city traffic, our city bridge engineers are checking that structure regularly. I mean, all, all structures are checked on, on, a, current, uh, on a particular uh, schedule. But when it comes to Arlington Bridge, because it is so old, it is uh, inspected that much more frequently. So the longer it sits around, the more frequently we'll have uh, unplanned closures to uh, to fix things up. But you might have more um, permanent closures. I mean, a permanent closure, like the, yeah. the they don't know when, but that day is coming sooner than we probably think. And so how, what's the timeline if you're sitting there at this table for you to say, OK, wait, we need to make a decision when October, December, like what's the timeline? Right. I mean, we need to look at also what the, the impact is of a permanent closure. The, the administrative report that uh, was published yesterday, the only thing it mentions is if you are a pedestrian on one side of the bridge and you needed to get to the other side, like sort of the worst case scenario as a pedestrian, it would, it would add 25 minutes to your trip. Uh, I mean, Northwest Winnipeg is continuing to grow. But at the same time, I mean, what would be the, the impact on a level of service to, uh, with, a, say, a, a closure for a period of time by diverting all the traffic to McPhillips, to Slaw Rebchuk, as well as Main Street? Uh, that isn't in the report, and that would be something that, as decision makers, we need to have uh, before we you know, decide which major project goes forward next. And, of course, you'd be familiar with a similar conversation about uh, keeping the Disraeli Bridge in service while the new one uh, was construction uh, constructed several years ago. So uh, this is not an uncommon uh, request to, to look at the impacts of these decisions. It sounds as though uh, city engineers have proposed or suggested that they go with the least expensive of the solutions for a bridge. Basically, uh, I just used the word base. Uh, and a utilitarian bridge versus one that that, that uh, featured a more architecturally, uh, shall we say, grandiose vision. Uh, the cost estimate, if this was uh, to get underway next year, is almost $319 million. But th- there's no money for this in any budget, is there, Jeff? No. Uh, again, like in terms of our self-imposed debt ceiling, 
Uh, we're coming up to sort of a wall here. I mean, it's about $150 million we have left at the moment. Um, since the, the current mayor came in, we've sort of adopted some, you know, not great policies in terms of how we fund, like, even just basic road repairs. When, you know, in the past, every year we increase the amount of what we call cash to capital, money that comes in from property taxes that goes directly into building roads. That increased every year by, by $2 million under the, under the previous mayor. We also brought in the 1%... Uh, increase annually that was going directly into incremental uh, uh, local streets and then 1% going into regional streets and bridges. Uh, what has happened in the most recent years, uh, and I mean, I've been part of the, I was part of the EPC the first couple of years when this was being done. What happened was we still continued to invest in repairing our current roads, but what we did was we did it with debt. So, I mean, it's not bad policy. Like, you know, you and I, we, you know, get a mortgage for our homes. Maybe we borrow money for a car. But what we were effectively doing by borrowing money just to repair roads is we're effectively using our credit cards and you know borrowing money just to buy groceries. So we, we have some we have some big challenges. So Jeff, uh, three hundred million dollar expenditure that's expected to grow by three percent a year in terms of the increased uh, cost to do this every year. We put it off starting in twenty twenty one. Are we at a tipping point? to genuinely look at the economics, the costs, and the benefits of moving these rail yards? Absolutely, Greg. I mean, it's sort of the dream. I mean, I know a lot of naysayers will say it'll never happen. You know, we're never going to get an NHL hockey team back. We're never going to have an IKEA. The rail yards are going to be there forever. I mean, there's two parts to it. The CP Weston Yards, which, again, the Darlington Bridge crosses, you know, the middle of, um, is not a major uh, asset, a major... Uh, piece for CP anymore is my best understanding. Uh, the CP mainline that goes through there, I don't see that going anywhere without, you know, again, uh, a totally separate and also major um, investment. Uh, there is federal government money typically for the relocation of rail lines. Uh, I, I don't want to say it's never going to happen, but again, it is It is one of those sort of uh, you know, frame-breaking major changes. It would, it would definitely change the, the future of our city. And I just insisted we immediately will get text messages. We're getting them now. We got them at uh, seven o'clock when I went through this. Uh, it's good. It's cost too much. It's pie in the sky. But my point is this: we don't genuinely know what the cost is. We don't know what the cost of remedi- remediation of the land is, and we don't know the potential economic benefits of of doing this. Right. I mean, look. I mean, we moved the. I mean, there was a rail yard at at the forks. Not that many years ago. I mean, those those moved out. I mean, the CN mainline is, is still goes through there. But, uh, I mean, look look at all the opportunity that uh, came about when we redeveloped the Forks area, for example. But we've had this conversation so many times about the rail yards. I mean, what needs to be done? Can we not this year, this summer, by this fall, have a motion going forward saying we're going to pay X dollars for a consultant committee to finally look at this and at least get that ball rolling? We, we put hundreds of thousands of dollars each year into all sorts of consultant reports. Why not this one? Why not now? I'd be supportive of uh, looking at it. Absolutely. No, and I mean, I was disappointed when uh, they, the, the committee that uh, was started by the previous government and uh, Jean Charest was, was involved uh, in, in, in reading that. I think it's a good exercise to have. I mean, it, like, what would be the scenario that, you know, CP could look at relocating? I mean, a lot of it is the conversations with, with CP Rail. How, how significant of, uh, of a piece is that? I mean, the dream would be to, I mean, the, the ultimate dream would be to have, you know, the CP mainline go around the city, have a new rail port at, at Centerport, and then re, repurpose the, the CP lines within the city for some form of rapid transit. Uh, 
Jeff, baby steps, baby steps for sure. But Jeff, you you mentioned the the return of the NHL and in casual conversation for years, people would just simply say, we can't afford it. They would say things like tickets will average a hundred dollars per ticket. Well, the team's been back eight years and we're still not at a hundred dollar average ticket for season ticket holders. So uh, the numbers involved uh, are a mystery around what this could mean and what this might cost. And we certainly have haven't explored what the economic benefits would be uh, surrounding this. So uh, I, I appreciate you you uh, suggesting you'd be in favor of, of moving a motion forward potentially to have this studied. I mean, 320, you know, even at the low end, uh, 319 is, 319 million is a big, big number. We need to figure out, uh, A, uh, what the alternatives are. Again, perhaps we're a relocation and B, could we operate for a period of time, you know, 15, 20 years uh, in terms of vehicular traffic without having an Arlington Bridge there, for example? Uh, is there enough capacity at Phillips, at, at uh, Slaw Rebchuk and in Main Street? I think we could probably go. I, I believe there, were, there was talk, you know, a number of years ago that there was a, an opportunity to go without those two lanes of traffic. The proposed new bridge is only a three-lane structure. So in the AM rush hour, the southbound lane into downtown is still only proposed as a single lane. That is in the administrative report that came out yesterday. Thirty-third annual Teddy Bears Picnic is this weekend, Sunday, May 26, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Assiniboine Park, presented by the Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba. And in studio with us, we have a father-daughter duo who have been volunteering for years, even when said daughter broke her leg. They kept going. <laughs> David and Jordan Shapira are their names, and the Foundation's Director of Communications and Marketing, Tanya Williams, is here, too. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So why don't we start with this broken leg? Because <laughs> oh. uh, that was that when when Tanya sent us a list of what what do you want to talk about? I saw no, that's okay. broken it's, leg, and I said I, I want to know yeah, what I happened. Am, there. I actually I'm a hockey player. I'm a goalie, and uh, I think it was like a week before the picnic started. I was playing hockey, and um, I was subbing for a, a upper level men's team. I kind of got run over, and I ended up tearing both of my MCLs. So oh, I was actually ouch. in double knee braces for the picnic. How old were you? Uh, this was four years ago, so I would have been 20. Oh, yeah. my word. <laughs> yeah. Both knees? Both knees. I was in double knee braces. And uh, it's kind of, honestly, I'm a little bit proud of it because uh, the doctor said that I was the second person they've ever met to do both of my knees at the same time. So well, it's, if you're going to well go big. <laughs> exactly. Go big or go home, right? So <laughs> And so you made it like there was no question in your mind of walking. I mean, that's a oh, big no, space to all. walk across, you know, parking, I mean, all the rest. I was lucky because in doing both, I just kind of had to waddle myself around the field. So <laughs> it ended up working out well. Why is this so important to you that you would that you would make sure that you did this other than the connection with your dad and doing well, it with your dad? That, that is a huge part of it. It's, it is a family involvement. So it's it's a huge pride of mine that uh, that I'm involved in it with my family and that I get to do something so special with my dad and help uh, bring awareness to the Children's Hospital Foundation and, and kind of help the kids out and get to see what we've been working towards all year. It's it's so it's so important to me and it's it's something I'm very proud of and I always make sure that I'm here for it. Um, even though I don't live in the city anymore, I make sure that I'm 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 here for it. You travel I'm, in to be here for the picnic? Yeah, I actually go to school in Saskatoon now. Oh, wow. So I, I don't live here in the city, but I make sure that I'm here for the summer for the picnic. So David, what prompted this love of the event and, and making sure your daughter was involved? Well, it all started a long time ago with, uh, I guess, my grandfather, who uh, worked a lot with the um, Children's Hospital, uh, Dr. George Shapira. And then he got, at some point, my Uncle Ernie was involved through the his accounting 
um, to the to get involved with the teddy bear picnic. We were actually doing the um, the telethon at that time and all that. So he got my dad involved, and my dad got me involved. So this is going back twenty five plus years ago, and I've just kept up with it. Uh, my dad was still involved, and um, I saw my dad out doing all the parking. And then when we stopped doing the coordinated parking within the within the zoo, uh, I just got on with my uncle who we do the coordinate all the food for all the volunteers, which we feed like I'd say roughly about. 5,000, 6,000 volunteers throughout the day. We should point out he's wearing a shirt from... 1994. 1994. The fact that you have it speaks volumes, and B, that you can fit in it. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tanya, as far as uh, what's new at the picnic this year, I understand you're doing something different with the 50-50. Yes, uh, thank you for mentioning that. We have a new 50-50 that's um, on our website at goodbear.ca, and uh, people can go online, buy tickets, and help support the Children's Hospital and the Teddy Bears picnic. Uh, But I have to tell you about these two people beside me. Um, They're... Ernie Shapiro was actually one of the ones that started the Teddy Bears Picnic. And you want to talk about passionate volunteers. Um, They're with us the minute we started meetings in, what, September? Yeah. Right until May. Like, anytime you call them day or night, they're going to respond, what do you need? What can I do? And and sitting here with them always reminds me how special they are and how dedicated, and we so appreciate both of you. (laughs) So Dr. Goodbear, obviously a big part of this, but the Teddy Bears Picnic Yes. The, the, there's that mash unit and that that ability for the for for kids to get a sense of maybe what they might face should they ever have to go to totally. Children's Hospital. Talk yes. about the the impact of that and how that is for a lot of people. That's the focal point of the picnic. Totally, our Dr. Goodbear Clinic is essentially the Children's Hospital taken off you know the doors in Sherbrooke and recreated on-site at Assiniboine Park. Um, if you look at the majority of, of volunteers in that clinic, they're actually real, you know, neurosurgeons, uh, your doctors, your your nurses, your allied health professionals. Um, they're the first ones to always put up their hands going, let's volunteer, let's make this happen. Um, it's a really important clinic, and, we, and it's been there since, I believe, the beginning. Yes. Um, and it's a, it's a way that, to teach your child through their teddy bear um, how much fun it can be at the hospital, how it can't be. It's not necessarily a scary place. It may seem like it, um, but it really it goes through everything from how to prepare your bear for surgery. What's it like when they put the mask on your face when you go to have a little sleep and how they make that special by choosing your own scent? Um, it could be, you know, picking out your favorite, you know, maybe your bear hurt their arm. Pick out your favorite cast color and let's watch and make a cast together. So it really teaches every single, even epilepsy now has a section. So it's really great that they all get involved to uh, to take care of our kids. The dentist even has a section. The last time we were there, my kids kept the fake teeth on their frog and their monkey mm-hmm. for like because it was hilarious that Froggy totally. had teeth. But <laughs> totally. the point was the same because all those minor experiences that we maybe take for granted can be pretty not traumatic but difficult right. for a child to walk in and, and put their trust over to a professional like that. Completely. Even we have a, our weary bear tent is this year that uh, is coming back again this year that deals with mental health. We have a new tent this year that actually deals with hair care. Um, it actually traumatizes a lot of children to go get a haircut. So we have um, a wonderful barber team from Hunter and Glenn that are coming in, and they're going to be running a tent doing braids and little cuts if your bear or your child wants it. And uh, the money raised will support the Children's Hospital Foundation. Fantastic. Now, Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, your role as a volunteer yeah. at the Teddy Bears Picnic, what are you, do you, do you have sort of a set thing you do every year? Well, um, I, I'm 
been coordinating the concession stand uh, probably since I was 16, I think. So about eight years now, I've been coordinating the volunteers for the concession stand. So I do that. And then um, during the actual picnic, I team up with my dad and help deliver food to the various volunteer food tents. But I also make sure that the concession stand is stocked because all that money that we raise at the concession stand all goes towards the Children's Hospital Foundation. So making making sure we have things like ice cream, we always have some ice cream for sale and drinks and bottles of water and and that kind of stuff that people can buy and that money goes towards the Children's Hospital Foundation. So on top of helping my dad deliver the food throughout the day, I also make sure that um, the concession stand stays good and stocked for everybody. It's a fun event, but I'm just curious as a father-daughter volunteering duo ever get a little tiffs, tiffs or arguments <laughs> no. along the way? No. Never. 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 Of course not. <laughs> we can talk about that later. We, we may be off-air conversation. Yeah. <laughs> we, we might have to go into separate vehicles when we start. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> David, uh, this is such a worthwhile cause, and being involved uh, for as long as you have, essentially, from the very beginning, the, the picnic clearly has evolved, and the, and the, and the way things are done can only get better every single year. Have you seen the efficiencies grow and the the ability to react to certain situations change? Well, funny you should mention that because I normally handle all this food many times through the week of the start of the picnic. So it used to be we have, we used to handle, I'd say, let's say a tray of sandwiches. I would have to move it about five or six times throughout the day. I'm kind of down to about two times a day now. Good for you. I can attest so, that he's got this down to a science at this how, point. How much, and, and just the, the, the effort that we put in, we try to minimize how much effort we actually have to do. And that just comes from years of experience of what can we do better? And that I just trying to minimize my, my effort that I got to put in. So we really kind of narrowed this down to a science now. Well, uh, you know, as uh, as uh, as Jordan mentioned, the whole idea, if you don't have stock, you can't sell it. Exactly. Right? So exactly. The, 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 there's a business mindset that, that takes over here. There is, and it and has we, to. And we do have to thank all our uh, sponsors who do um, provide us with all the dry goods, the, the paper products, the food itself. Um, we, as my uncle says, we don't like to buy anything. We like to get it donated. And we work very hard to get it donated because, again... And we don't want to pay for anything because anything we have to pay for comes out of the, the bottom line dollars. So you, and you take it kind of personally, we right? Do, because actually. you want you don't. So it's almost like putting it in your own it's pocket. It's funny because when we're sitting around the the the, the room where we're doing our, our meetings every once a month, someone says, "Well, I have to I have to buy this." My uncle like will stand up and say, <laughs> uh, "No, we're not buying that. <laughs> we, will, we will get it I'll donated." The yeah. children, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, so Tanya, before we let you go as well, I just wanted to ask you about the, the new hair hygiene. Is that something new? Yes, that's what I was just mentioning about the uh, from Hunter and Glenn. They're doing okay. um, some some haircuts to teach kids too about how it's not uh, scary to um, to come get your haircut. It's actually a really good thing. It's important for hair hygiene too. You're going to be on stage. Yep, from nine until eleven, I'll be uh, co-hosting with Kirby from Power Mornings with Philly Joe and Kirby on Power ninety seven, and I'll be popping by the Worry Bear Tent that Tanya mentioned mm-hmm. with our friend Raymond Abdurrahman from Clinic Psychology. Right after that, you're going to pop by the Worry Bear I'll Tent be there. too, right? Absolutely, I will. I'm bringing the kids and put the worry clouds on their heads, and they're going <laughs> to give some advice out. It's it's good for us too, by the way, as adults. Those worry clouds, just yes. saying, yeah, no it, question it's a great about thing it. For a conversation, I, I spent yeah. a lot of time in children's hospital when I was a kid, and. Uh, 
This is a, a powerful uh, exclamation mark on our community and what we can do when we put our uh, minds together and our efforts together. And uh, just another, I can't believe it's going to be 33 It years. is a wonderful yeah. event. Fantastic. Thanks for all your efforts. It's amazing. My pleasure. This Sunday, May 26, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Cinnaboyne Park, the 33rd annual Teddy Bears Picnic for the Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba. I want to thank David and Jordan Shapira, father-daughter, volunteer duo, and the Foundation's Director of Communications and marketing, Tanya Williams. And once again, Tanya, the website? Plan your day at goodbear.ca. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.